1: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Stuart Wills. Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. Chapters 37 and 38. Chapter 37. It all begins with a remarkable exploit of a man called Brown who stole with complete success a spanish schooner out of a small bay near zamboanga till i discovered the fellow my information was incomplete but most unexpectedly i did come upon him a few hours before he gave up his arrogant ghost fortunately he was willing and able to talk between choking fits of asthma and his racked body writhed with malicious exultation at the bare thought of Jim. He exulted thus at the idea that he had uh, paid out the stuck-up beggar after all. He gloated over his action. I had to bear the sunken glare of his fierce crow-footed eyes if I wanted to know, and so I bore it, reflecting how much certain forms of evil are akin to madness— derived from intense egoism, inflamed by resistance, tearing the soul to pieces and giving facetious vigor to the body. The story also reveals unexpected depths of cunning in the wretched Cornelius, whose abject and intense hate acts like a subtle inspiration, pointing out an unerring way towards revenge. I could see directly I set my eyes on him what sort of fool he was gasped the dying brown (laughs) he a man hell he was a hollow sham as if he couldn't have said straight out hands off my plunder blast him that would have been like a man rot his superior soul he had me there but he hadn't devil enough in him to make an end of me not he a thing like that Letting me off as if I wasn't worth a kick. Brown struggled desperately for breath. <laughs> Fraud! Letting me off! And so I did make an end of him after all. He choked again. I expect this thing will kill me, but I shall die easy now. You! You here! I don't know your name. I would give you a five-pound note if, if I had it. FOR THE NEWS, OR MY NAME'S NOT BROWN, HE GRINNED HORRIBLY. GENTLEMAN BROWN! HE SAID ALL THESE THINGS IN PROFOUND GASPS, STARING AT ME WITH HIS YELLOW EYES OUT OF A LONG, RAVAGED BROWN FACE. HE JERKED HIS LEFT ARM. A PEPPER-AND-SALT-MATTED BEARD HUNG ALMOST INTO HIS LAP. A DIRTY, RAGGED BLANKET COVERED HIS LEGS. I had found him out in Bangkok through that busybody Schomberg, the hotel-keeper, who had confidentially directed me where to look. It appears that a sort of loafing, fuddled vagabond, a white man living amongst the natives with a Siamese woman, had considered it a great privilege to give shelter to the last days of the famous Gentleman Brown. While he was talking to me in the wretched hovel, and, as it were, fighting for every minute of his life, the Siamese woman, with big bare legs and a stupid coarse face, sat in a dark corner chewing beetles stolidly. Now and then she would get up for the purpose of shooing a chicken away from the door. The whole hut shook when she walked. An ugly yellow child, naked and pot-bellied like a little heathen god, stood at the foot of my couch, finger in mouth lost in a profound and calm contemplation of the dying man. He talked feverishly, but in the middle of a word, perhaps, an invisible hand would take him by the throat, and he would look at me dumbly, with an expression of doubt and anguish. He seemed to fear that I would get tired of waiting and go away, leaving him with his tale untold, with his exultation unexpressed. He died during the night, I believe, but uh, by that time I had nothing more to learn. So much as to Brown, for the present. Eight months before this, coming into Samarang, I went as usual to see Stein— on the garden side of the house, a melee on the veranda greeted me shyly, and I remembered that I had seen him in Patizan, in Jim's house, among other Boogie's men who used to come in the evening to talk interminably over their war reminiscences and to discuss state affairs. Jim had pointed him out to me once as a respectable petty trader owning a small sea-going native craft, who had showed himself one of the best at the taking of the stockade. I was not very surprised to see him, since any partisan trader venturing as far as Samarang would naturally find his way to Stein's house. I returned his greeting and passed on. At the door of Stein's room I came upon another melee in whom I recognized tam Itam. tam I asked him at once what he was doing there. It occurred to me that Jim might have come on a visit— I own I was pleased and excited at the thought. Tam-i-Tam looked as if he did not know what to say. "'Is Tuon Jim inside?' I asked impatiently. "'No,' he mumbled, hanging his head for a moment. And then, with sudden earnestness, "'He would not fight. "'He would not fight,' he repeated twice. As he seemed unable to say anything else, I pushed him aside and went in. Stein, tall and stooping, stood alone in the middle of the room between the rows of butterfly cases. Ah is it you, my friend? he said sadly, peering through his glasses. A drab sack coat of alpaca hung unbuttoned down to his knees. He had a Panama hat on his head, and there were deep furrows on his pale cheeks. What's the matter now? I asked nervously. There's Tammy Tam there. Come and see the girl. Come and see the girl. She is here, he said, with a half-hearted show of activity. I tried to detain him, but with gentle obstinacy he would take no notice of my eager questions. She is here. She is here, he repeated in great perturbation. They came here two days ago. An old man like me, a stranger, Cannot do much. Come this way. Young hearts are unforgiving. I could see he was in utmost distress. The strength of life in them. The cruel strength of life. He mumbled, leading me round the house. I followed him, lost in dismal and angry conjectures. At the door of the drawing-room he barred my way. He loved her very much he said interrogatively, and I only nodded, feeling so bitterly disappointed that I would not trust myself to speak. "'Very frightful,' he murmured. "'She can't understand me. I am only a strange old man. Perhaps you—she knows you. Talk to her. We can't leave it like this. Tell her to forgive him.' It was very frightful. "'No doubt,' I said.' exasperated at being in the dark but have you forgiven him he looked at me queerly you shall hear he said and opening the door absolutely pushed me in you know stein's big house and the two immense reception rooms uninhabited and uninhabitable clean full of solitude and of shining things that look as if never beheld by the eye of man They are cool on the hottest days, and you enter them as you would a scrubbed cave underground. I passed through one, and in the other I saw the girl sitting at the end of a big mahogany table, on which she rested her head, her face hidden in her arms. The wax floor reflected her dimly as though it had been a sheet of frozen water.' the rattan screens were down and through the strange greenish gloom made by the foliage of the trees outside a strong wind blew in gusts swaying the long draperies of windows and doorways her white figure seemed shaped in snow the pendant crystals of a great chandelier clicked above her head like glittering icicles she looked up and watched my approach I was chilled as if these vast apartments had been the cold abode of despair. She recognized me at once, and as soon as I had stopped looking down at her, "'He has left me,' she said quietly. "'You always leave us, for your own ends.' Her face was set. All the heat of life seemed withdrawn within some inaccessible spot of her breast." It would have been easy to die with him, she went on and made a slight weary gesture as if giving up the incomprehensible. He would not. It was like a blindness. And yet it was I who was speaking to him. It was I who stood before his eyes. It was at me that he looked all the time. (sighs) Ah, You are hard, treacherous, without truth without compassion? What makes you so wicked? Or is it that you are all mad? I took her hand. It did not respond, and when I dropped it, it hung down to the floor. That indifference, more awful than tears, cries, and reproaches, seemed to defy time and consolation. You felt that nothing you could say would reach the seat of the still and benumbing pain. Stein had said, You shall hear. I did hear. I heard it all, listening with amazement, with awe to the tones of her inflexible weariness. She could not grasp the real sense of what she was telling me, and her resentment filled me with pity for her—for him, too. I stood rooted to the spot after she had finished. Leaning on her arm, she stared with hard eyes And the wind passed in gusts, and the crystals kept on clicking in the greenish gloom. She went on, whispering to herself. And yet he was looking at me. He could see my face, hear my voice, hear my grief. When I used to sit at his feet with my cheek against his knee and his hand on my head, the curse of cruelty and madness was already within him, waiting for the day. The day came, and before the sun had set he could not see me any more; he was made blind and deaf and without pity, as you all are; he shall have no tears from me, never, never, not one tear, I will not! He went away from me as if I had been worse than death, he fled as if driven by some accursed thing he had heard or seen in his sleep. Her steady eyes seemed to strain after the shape of a man, torn out of her arms by the strength of a dream. She made no sign to my silent bow. I was glad to escape. I saw her once again, the same afternoon. On leaving her I had gone in search of Stein— whom I could not find indoors, and I wandered out, pursued by distressful thoughts, into the gardens, those famous gardens of Stein, in which you can find every plant and tree of tropical lowlands. I followed the course of the canalized stream, and sat for a long time on a shaded bench near the ornamental pond, where some waterfowl with clipped wings were diving and splashing noisily. The branches of casuarina trees behind me swayed lightly, incessantly, reminding me of the sowing of fir-trees at home. This mournful and restless sound was a fit accompaniment to my meditations. She had said he had been driven away from her by a dream, and there was no answer one could make her. There seemed to be no forgiveness for such a transgression." And yet is not mankind itself pushing on its blind way, driven by a dream of its greatness and its power upon the dark paths of excessive cruelty and of excessive devotion? And what is the pursuit of truth, after all? When I rose to get back to the house, I caught sight of Stein's drab coat through a gap in the foliage, and very soon, at a turn of the path, I came upon him walking with the girl her little hand rested on his forearm, and under the broad, flat rim of his Panama hat he bent over her, grey-haired, paternal, with compassionate and chivalrous deference. I stood aside, but they stopped facing me. His gaze was bent on the ground at his feet. The girl, erect and slight on his arm, stared somberly beyond my shoulder, with black, clear, motionless eyes. "'Schrecklich!' he murmured. "'Terrible! terrible! What can one do?' He seemed to be appealing to me, but her youth, the length of the days suspended over her head, appealed to me more, and suddenly, even as I realized that nothing could be said, I found myself pleading his cause for her sake. "'You must forgive him,' I concluded, and my own voice seemed to me muffled.' "'lost in an unresponsive deaf immensity. "'We all want to be forgiven,' I added after a while. "'What have I done?' she asked, with her lips only. "'You always mistrusted him,' I said. "'He was like the others,' she pronounced slowly. "'Not like the others,' I protested, "'but she continued evenly, without any feeling. "'He was false.' and suddenly Stein broke in. No, 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 my poor child. He patted her hand, lying passively on his sleeve. No, no, not false. True, true, true. He tried to look into her stony face. You don't understand. Ach, why you do not understand. Terrible, he said to me. Some day she shall understand.' "'Will you explain?' I asked, looking hard at him. They moved on. I watched them. Her gown trailed on the path, her black hair fell loose. She walked upright and light by the side of the tall man, whose long shapeless coat hung in perpendicular folds from the stooping shoulders, whose feet moved slowly.' They disappeared beyond that spinny, you may remember, where sixteen different kinds of bamboo grow together, all distinguishable to the learned eye. For my part I was fascinated by the exquisite grace and beauty of that fluted grove, crowned with pointed leaves and feathery heads, the lightness, the vigour, the charm as distinct as a voice of that unperplexed, luxuriating life, I remember staying to look at it for a long time, as one would linger within reach of a consoling whisper. The sky was pearly grey. It was one of those overcast days so rare in the tropics in which memories crowd upon one, memories of other shores, of other faces. I drove back to town the same afternoon, taking with me tam Tom tam and the other melee, in whose sea-going craft they had escaped in the bewilderment, fear, and gloom of the disaster. The shock of it seemed to have changed their natures. It had turned her passion into stone, it had made the surly, taciturn Tammy tam almost loquacious. His surliness, too, was subdued into a puzzled humility, as though he had seen the failure of a potent charm in a supreme moment the boogie's trader a shy hesitating man was very clear in the little he had to say both were evidently overawed by a sense of deep inexpressible wonder by the touch of an inscrutable mystery there with marlowe's signature the letter proper ended the privileged reader screwed up his lamp and solitary above the billowy roofs of the town like a lighthouse-keeper above the sea, he turned to the pages of the story. Chapter 38 It all begins, as I've told you, with the man called Brown, ran the opening sentence of Marlowe's narrative. You who have knocked about the Western Pacific must have heard of him. He was the show-ruffian on the Australian coast— Not that he was often to be seen there, but because he was always trotted out in the stories of lawless life a visitor from home is treated to, and the mildest of these stories which were told about him from Cape York to Eden Bay was more than enough to hang a man if told in the right place. They never failed to let you know, too, that he was supposed to be the son of a baronet, Be it as it may, it is certain he had deserted from a home ship in the early gold-digging days, and in a few years became talked about as the terror of this or that group of islands in Polynesia. He would kidnap natives, he would strip some lonely white trader to the very pyjamas he stood in, and after he had robbed the poor devil he would as likely as not invite him to fight a duel with shotguns on the beach which would have been fair enough as these things go if the other man hadn't been by that time already half dead with fright brown was a latter-day buccaneer sorry enough like his more celebrated prototypes but what distinguished him from his contemporary brother ruffians like bully hayes or the mellifluous peas or that perfumed, dundreary-whiskered, dandified scoundrel known as Dirty Dick, was the arrogant temper of his misdeeds, and a vehement scorn for mankind at large, and for his victims in particular. The others were merely vulgar and greedy brutes, but he seemed moved by some complex intention he would rob a man as if only to demonstrate his poor opinion of the creature, and he would bring to the shooting or maiming of some quiet, unoffending stranger a savage and vengeful earnestness fit to terrify the most reckless of desperadoes. In the days of his greatest glory he owned an armed bark, manned by a mixed crew of kanakas and runaway whalers, and boasted, I don't know with what truth, of being financed on the quiet by a most respectable firm of copra merchants. Later on he ran off, it was reported, with the wife of a missionary, a very young girl from Clapham Way, who had married the mild flat-footed fellow in a moment of enthusiasm, and suddenly transplanted to Melanesia, lost her bearing somehow. It was a dark story— she was ill at the time he carried her off, and died on board his ship. It is said, as the most wonderful part of the tale, that over her body he gave way to an outburst of sombre and violent grief. His luck left him, too, very soon after. He lost his ship on some rocks off Maleta and disappeared for a time as though he had gone down with her. He is heard of next at Nuka Hiva, where he bought an old French schooner out of government service. What creditable enterprise he might have had in view when he made that purchase, I can't say. But it is evident that what with high commissioners, consuls, men of war, and international control, the South Seas were getting too hot to hold gentlemen of his kidney. Clearly he must have shifted the scene of his operations further west, because a year later he plays an incredibly audacious but not very profitable part in a serio-comic business in Manila Bay, in which a peculating governor and an absconding treasurer are the principal figures. Thereafter he seems to have hung around the Philippines in his rotten schooner, battling with an adverse fortune, till at last, running his appointed course, he sails into Jim's history— A blind accomplice of the dark powers. His tale goes that when a Spanish patrol cutter captured him, he was simply trying to run a few guns for the insurgents. If so, then I can't understand what he was doing off the south coast of Mindanao. My belief, however, is that he was blackmailing the native villages along the coast. The principal thing is that the cutter, throwing a guard on board, made him sail in company towards Zamboanga. On the way, for some reason or other, both vessels had to call at one of these new Spanish settlements, which never came to anything in the end, where there was not only a civil official in charge on shore, but a good stout coasting schooner lying at anchor in the little bay. And this craft, in every way much better than his own, Brown made up his mind to steal. He was down on his luck— as he told me himself. The world he had bullied for twenty years with fierce, aggressive disdain had yielded him nothing in the way of material advantage, except a small bag of silver dollars, which was concealed in his cabin so that the devil himself couldn't smell it out. And that was all, absolutely all. He was tired of his life, and not afraid of death, But this man, who would stake his existence on a whim with bitter and jeering recklessness, stood in mortal fear of imprisonment. He had an unreasoning, cold-sweat, nerve-shaking, blood-to-water-turning sort of horror at the bare possibility of being locked up, the sort of terror a superstitious man would feel at the thought of being embraced by a specter. Therefore the civil official who came on board to make a preliminary investigation into the capture investigated arduously all day long, and only went ashore after dark, muffled up in a cloak, and taking care not to let Brown's little awl clink in its bag. Afterwards, being a man of his word, he contrived, the very next evening, I believe, to send off the government cutter on some urgent bit of special service. As her commander could not spare a prize crew, he contented himself by taking away, before he left, all the sails of Brown's schooner to the very last rag, and took good care to tow his two boats on to the beach a couple of miles off. But in Brown's crew there was a Solomon Islander, kidnapped in his youth and devoted to Brown, who was the best man of the whole gang. That fellow swam off to the coaster, five hundred yards or so, with the end of a warp, made up of all the running gear unroved for the purpose. The water was smooth and the bay dark. like the inside of a cow, as Brown described it. The Solomon Islander clambered over the bulwarks with the end of the rope in his teeth, The crew of the coaster, all Tagals, were ashore, having a jollification in the native village. The two shipkeepers left on board woke up suddenly and saw the devil. It had glittering eyes and leaped quick as lightning about the deck. They fell on their knees, paralyzed with fear, and crossing themselves and mumbling prayers with a long knife he found in the caboose the solomon islander without interrupting their orisons stabbed first one then the other with the same knife he set to sawing patiently at the quarr cable till suddenly it parted under the blade with a splash then in the silence of the bay he let out a cautious shout and brown's gang who meantime had been peering and straining their hopeful ears in the darkness began to pull gently at their end of the warp. In less than five minutes the two schooners came together with a slight shock and creak of spars. Brown's crowd transferred themselves without losing an instant, taking with them their firearms and a large supply of ammunition. They were sixteen in all, two runaway bluejackets, a lanky deserter from a Yankee man-of-war, a couple of simple blonde scandinavians a mulatto of sorts one bland chinaman who cooked and the rest of the nondescript spawn of the south seas none of them cared brown bent them to his will and brown indifferent to gallows was running away from the spectre of a spanish prison he didn't give them the time to transship enough provisions the weather was calm the air was charged with dew and when they cast off the ropes and set sail to a faint off-shore draught, there was no flutter in the damp canvas. Their old schooner seemed to detach itself gently from the stolen craft and slip away silently, together with the black mass of the coast, into the night. They got clear away. Brown related to me in detail their passage down the Straits of Macassar. It is a harrowing and desperate story— they were short of food and water they boarded several native craft and got a little from each with a stolen ship brown did not dare to put into any port of course he had no money to buy anything no papers to show and no lie plausible enough to get him out again an arab bark under the dutch flag surprised one night at anchor off palo laut yielded a little dirty rice, a bunch of bananas, and a cask of water. Three days of squally, misty weather from the northeast shot the schooner across the Java Sea. The yellow, muddy waves drenched that collection of hungry ruffians. They sighted mail-boats moving on their appointed routes, passed well-found home-ships with rusty iron sides anchored in the shallow sea waiting for a change of weather or the turn of the tide, An English gunboat, white and trim, with two slim masts, crossed their bows one day in the distance, and on another occasion a Dutch corvette, black and heavily sparred, loomed up on their quarter, steaming dead slow in the mist. They slipped through unseen or disregarded, a wan, sallow-faced band of utter outcasts, enraged with hunger and hunted by fear. Brown's idea was to make for Madagascar, where he expected, on grounds not altogether illusory, to sell the schooner in Tamatave, and no questions asked, or perhaps obtain some more or less forged papers for her. Yet before he could face the long passage across the Indian Ocean, food was wanted, and water too. Perhaps he had heard of Patizan, or perhaps he just only happened to see the name written in small letters on the chart, probably that of a largish village up the river in a native state, perfectly defenceless, far from the beaten tracks of the sea and from the ends of submarine cables. He had done that kind of thing before, in the way of business, and this now was an absolute necessity, a question of life and death. Or rather, of liberty. Of liberty. He was sure to get provisions bullocks, rice, sweet potatoes. The sorry gang licked their chops. A cargo of produce for the schooner, perhaps, could be extorted. And, who knows, some real, ringing, coined money. Some of these chiefs and village headmen can be made to part freely. He told me he would have roasted their toes rather than be balked. I believed him. His men believed him, too. They didn't cheer aloud, being a dumb pack, but made ready wolfishly. Luck served him as to weather. A few days of calm would have brought unmentionable horrors on board that schooner. But with the help of land and sea-breezes, in less than a week after clearing the Sunda Straits, he anchored off the Batu Kring mouth within a pistol-shot of the fishing village. Fourteen of them packed into the schooner's longboat, which was big, having been used for cargo work, and started up the river, while two remained in charge of the schooner with food enough to keep starvation off for ten days. The tide and wind helped, and early one afternoon the big white boat under a ragged sail shouldered its way before the sea-breeze into partisan reach, manned by fourteen assorted scarecrows glaring hungrily ahead, and fingering the breech-blocks of cheap rifles. Brown calculated upon the terrifying surprise of his appearance. They sailed in with the last of the flood. The Rajah's stockade gave no sign. The first houses on both sides of the stream seemed deserted. A few canoes were seen up the reach in full flight. Brown was astonished at the size of the place. A profound silence reigned. The wind dropped between the houses. Two oars were got out, and the boat held on upstream, the idea being to effect a lodgment in the centre of the town before the inhabitants could think of resistance. It seems, however, that the headman of the fishing village at Batu Kring had managed to send off a timely warning when the longboat came abreast of the mosque which Doramine had built, a structure with gables and roof finials of carved coral, the open space before it was full of people. A shout went up, and was followed by the clash of gongs all up the river. From a point above two little brass six-pounders were discharged, and the round shot came skipping down the empty reach, spurting glittering jets of water in the sunshine. In front of the mosque, a shouting lot of men began firing in volleys that whipped athwart the current of the river. An irregular rolling fusillade was opened on the boat from both banks, and Brown's men replied with a wild rapid fire. The oars had been got in. The turn of the tide at high water comes on very quickly in that river, and the boat in midstream, nearly hidden in smoke, began to drift back stern-foremost. Along both shores the smoke thickened also, lying below the roofs in a level streak as you may see a long cloud cutting the slope of a mountain. A tumult of war-cries, the vibrating clang of gongs, the deep snoring of drums, yells of rage, crashes of volley-firing, made an awful din, in which Brown sat confounded but steady at the tiller, Working himself into a fury of hate and rage against those people who dared to defend themselves. Two of his men had been wounded, and he saw his retreat cut off below the town by some boats that had put off from Tunku Alang's stockade. There were six of them, full of men. While he was thus beset, he perceived the entrance of the narrow creek, the same which Jim had jumped at low water. It was then brim full. Steering the long boat in, they landed, and to make a long story short, they established themselves on a little knoll about nine hundred yards from the stockade, which, in fact, they commanded from that position. The slopes of the knoll were bare, but there were a few trees on the summit. They went to work cutting these down for a breastwork and were fairly entrenched before dark. Meantime, the rajah's boats remained in the river with curious neutrality. When the sun set, the glue of many brushwood blazes lighted on the river-front, and between the double line of houses on the land-side threw into black relief the roofs, the groups of slender palms, the heavy clumps of fruit-trees. Brown ordered the grass round his position to be fired. A low ring of thin flames under the slow ascending smoke wriggled rapidly down the slopes of the knoll. Here and there a dry bush caught with a tall, vicious roar. The conflagration made a clear zone of fire for the rifles of the small party, and expired smouldering on the edge of the forest and along the muddy bank of the creek. A strip of jungle, luxuriating in a damp hollow between the knoll and the Rajah's stockade, stopped it on that side with a great cackling and detonations of bursting bamboo stems— the sky was sombre, velvety, and swarming with stars. The blackened ground smoked quietly with low creeping wisps, till a little breeze came on and blew everything away. Brown expected an attack to be delivered as soon as the tide had flowed enough again, to enable the war-boats which had cut off his retreat, to enter the creek. At any rate, he was sure there would be an attempt to carry off his longboat, which lay below the hill." a dark high lump on the feeble sheen of a wet mud-flat. But no move of any sort was made by the boats in the river. Over the stockade and the rajah's buildings, Brown saw their lights on the water. They seemed to be anchored across the stream. Other lights afloat were moving in the reach, crossing and recrossing from side to side there were also lights twinkling motionless upon the long walls of houses up the reach as far as the bend and more still beyond others isolated inland the loom of the big fires disclosed buildings roofs black piles as far as he could see it was an immense place the fourteen desperate invaders lying flat behind the felled trees Raise their chins to look over at the stir of that town that seemed to extend up river for miles and swarm with thousands of angry men. they did not speak to each other now and then they would hear a loud yell or a single shot rang out, fired very far somewhere, but round their position, everything was still, dark, silent. they seemed to be forgotten as if the excitement keeping awake all the population had nothing to do with them, as if they had been dead already. End of chapters 37 and 38
0: Do you love the American Constitution? We too. Please help letting this podcast survive in the current cancel culture. Amazon recently deleted our Peter Kanzler collection, probably for being too cheap. It was Locke, Hobbes and the US Constitution for only 15 bucks. Check out our Peter Kensler at Barnes & Noble, Lulu or do a quick DuckDuckGo search to buy American collections that come at the lowest price possible to keep civil law great. That's P-E-T-E-R-K-A-N-Z-L-E-R featuring the original texts from Locke Hobbes, Rousseau, the US Constitution, Machiavelli and many more always bound together in just one book. Thank you very much.